This episode of What Came Next is sponsored by Kitsch. What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I have been given the great honor of chatting with Elisa Wall. Elisa is a mother, author, survivor, and advocate for victims of cultic and sexual abuse. After freeing herself from an early life in the FLDS church, Elisa reinvented herself and her career several times. Yet, at the heart of all of her work is her incredible storytelling abilities. She recently appeared on Netflix's documentary, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, in which she shared a bit of her journey and healing. After watching, I could see Elisa's wisdom and poise are unrivaled, and that there was so much more to her story than the documentary could illustrate in four poignant episodes. Thus, I am so grateful Elisa was willing to share the rest of what came next for her with us. I am Elisa Wall, and I am so excited to be here with all of you today to share my story. A lot of what people don't know about me is I'm a mom first. I have two teenagers. I get the opportunity to not just parent myself, but parent my teenagers through it. I'm also a mompreneur. I manage a few different businesses. I am a speaker and a professional storyteller. My mission is to use my stories to create significant change in this world. I am an advocate and survivor of all different kinds of abuse. I was born into a religious cult that practiced polygamy. I was born to a family of 24 kids and three moms. I lived in a very secluded culture and community. Everything about our lives were controlled by religion. Everything we did from school to the way that we worshiped to community gatherings was all really centered around the community. I was born into it, and so was my mother. My father was a convert into this community, so I had a very unique perspective throughout my life because I had two worlds that kind of collided. Things were not always wonderful growing up. There was a lot about our lives that I questioned from time to time. As a child living in the community, I didn't know that there was a way of life outside of it because everything that I knew about the world, everything that I knew about life itself was spoon-fed to me by the religion. We didn't grow up with mainstream school. We didn't have television or movies. We didn't expose ourselves to media of any kind. Most of our books and literature that we had was produced by the religion. It's called the FLDS, and that stands for Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It comes from a break-off of Mormonism, so it follows some central tendons around Mormonism. Some of the things that made it a little different than your mainstream Mormonism is it was a lot more extreme. It was very secluded. And they also believed in one man who was the representative of God. 
And what that meant for the people is that this one man, he did everything from arrange marriages, give people permission to have children, to tell people what they were going to do with their career or their life. He really had a lot of control. I went to the religious school that was ran by this leader's son, Warren Jeffs. All of my life, I was educated, trained, and brainwashed by this man, having the leader's son as the principal, as well as the main educator of the school. Most of my viewpoint of the world, as well as anything I understood about myself, my role as a woman, or how to view men in the world, how to be a good child, how to have a relationship with God, all of that was really cultivated by this man. My family and I lived in the middle of Salt Lake City, Utah. And that's difficult for a lot of people to realize because we had a completely different lifestyle than our neighbors around us. We were secluded, but yet we were right in the middle of the city. We didn't go to any functions within the city. We dressed differently. We functioned so differently. And most of our neighbors didn't realize that we were a polygamous family. When I was 13 years old, the control that the religion had in my life really became apparent. My dad was stripped of his position inside of the church. He was a dissenter, meaning that he was becoming unfaithful and the concern was that he was going to influence other people to become unfaithful. The way that they'd solved that, they said, he's just not a priested man. And the word priesthood is this really fascinating word in the FLDS because it's an intangible, unseen power that supposedly comes from God through the leader, the prophet. Then he gives it and disperses it to only the man that he sees fit. What happened to my dad from that point was he had family taken away. My mother was moved with her children along with his third wife about 400 miles away to a community called Short Creek. My mother was remarried. The other wife was remarried to another man too. And our lives went on. My dad still had a testimony in the religion. He would spend the next decade of his life trying to win favor back because he had converted into this. He believed in the principles, as he would say it, but he didn't really have anything else in life. Even though he didn't have his family and I didn't know him after we were taken away, he still was a member of the community. In this act of having it taken away from my dad, that was one of those moments where it was proven that it was at the subject and the whim of the leadership, whether a man was considered priested and righteous or not. That showed me in a very visceral way that my future and destiny was absolutely controlled by what the leaders wanted to have done. That radically changed my world and I was moved out of the Salt Lake City area and moved down into a place called Short Creek, which is on the border of Utah and Arizona. It was really the main hub of the community of the FLDS. It was a town that had been established by pioneers and had only ever had residents that lived in it that were also a part of the cult. When I was 14 years old, I was forced into an arranged marriage to my first cousin. This was done because my mother had been remarried to another man in the community who was also the bishop of the area. He had told me that the prophet, who was another term for our leader, that he had someone for me to marry. I did something that no other woman really in the community did at that time. I resisted and I questioned it. We were taught from birth how to be a submissive, obedient woman, that we were property of the church. Even though I firmly believed that I was going to be married and I firmly believed I was going to have as many children as the Lord would bless me with, 
I also knew that I was going to be a plural wife. I knew that whatever man I was married to would have at least three wives or more because they believed that you had to have that many wives for the family to go to heaven. Even though I knew this and I had been very much brainwashed to believe that this was how it should be, there was something deep inside of me that knew better. I call it a little spark of flame. All the times throughout my childhood where I had looked at the outside world, I had seen that it didn't always make sense. I saw families that were loving and kind to one another. And what I was being told is that the outside world was evil. Everyone was in pain and struggle. So this misalignment of what I was seeing versus what I was being brainwashed to believe, it always left a taste of confusion inside of me. This really boiled up at this point in my life because being faced with the reality that I was so young, I was being forced to marry. I was told that I was going to be married to my first cousin. It was someone that I had known my whole life and I had vehemently disliked. All of these pieces led me to take a whole week of fighting in every possible way that I could to prevent this marriage from going. And my requests to the leadership were quite simple. I was asking for two years. I wanted to be 16 instead of 14. Then I just wanted to marry anybody else other than who they were asking me to marry. I ultimately found myself at the feet of the leader himself, the prophet, the man who is the representation of God on earth. He was very old and infirm at the time. What a lot of us didn't realize is that he was so checked out because of his illness that he was very unaware of what was happening inside of the church and inside of his religion. His son, the man who I had grown up with teaching me, Warren Jeffs, had taken over behind the scenes. Sitting in front of this man and begging my case, begging to have some more time so I could grow up a little bit more, he said something to me that would actually stick with me for the rest of my life. He said, just follow your heart, sweetie, just follow your heart. For me, that tender, desperate, innocent, sad 14-year-old, that was everything I needed because I knew inside of my heart that this marriage they wanted me to go into was not for me. I look back on my life and that moment when the one church leader was talking, I think that was the only time that I heard true spirit come from someone in that point of leadership. He told me to follow my heart. And I'm really grateful for that moment because it gave me the permission to do what I needed to do for the next part of my life. Ultimately, it didn't matter what my heart said. I was told that if I didn't go through with this marriage, then I would not have a place in my community. The pressure and the shame and the years and years of brainwashing really all came down on me. I found myself being driven into Nevada, where I was brought into a little motel room and lined up next to this man who they were going to have me marry. I'm standing there in front of the leaders, the men who controlled every aspect of my life. I'm standing in this beautiful handmade wedding dress that my mother and sister had spent the night before stitching for me. And I really felt like I wanted to die. I just started to sob. And I'm crying in this ceremony as the vows are being told to me that I will belong to this man for time and all eternity. It came time for me to say I do and I realized I couldn't. I just sat there until Warren Jeffs stood my mother up next to me. She grabbed my hand and just squoze it with all of her might. In that moment, it communicated to me the gravity of where I was and that it wasn't just my future, my destiny, and my salvation that was at stake. It was my mother's and it was my sister's that I loved so dearly and deeply. 
That overwhelming realization is what crumbled the last bit of resistance that I had. I finally said, okay. And my life began a very difficult four-year period of being in this forced marriage. Because of the way that I was raised, I went into this situation where I was being given to a man as property. And the training for the man is that it is his job to teach me how to be a submissive, obedient wife under every circumstance. And I'm being given to an adult man as a child. The abuse that would follow in the years to come was everything from sexual abuse to physical abuse, extreme and domestic abuse, more than anything, psychological, emotional, and spiritual abuse. But what I couldn't handle was when I would just be stripped up one side and down the other with all of the religious doctrine and how I was a bad wife, I was going to go to hell, and God doesn't love me, I'm not obedient. All of that religious rhetoric that were used as tools to try and get me to be what I wasn't. I was supposed to be a submissive wife who would have children. During this forced relationship, I couldn't have children. I didn't realize that I suffered from a condition which makes it difficult for me to successfully carry children. I know that now, but at the time, I was having miscarriages, had a stillbirth. I was never able to successfully carry children and was being told it was because you are an evil person. You are not even good enough to carry a child, so you're losing it. God keeps taking away from you. Thank you, Kitsch, for sponsoring this episode. Lately, some of my favorite simplest methods of upping my self-care game are better skin and hair care. So when I heard about Kitsch, I knew I had to check out their game-changing products. Launching in 2010, Kitsch is a self-funded, female-founded company that is now carried in over 20,000 retail locations. Kitsch's goal is to offer skin and hair care products for any budget, and they really do have it all. Like their satin pillowcases and eye masks, which are all vegan and cruelty-free, or their heatless satin curling rollers. Say bye-bye to heat damage. These are the original, the OG, and still the best heatless curlers. Do not settle for knockoffs. Get the ones that started the craze. Personally, I tried the pre-wash scalp oil with rosemary and biotin, and I also stucked up in their hair clips, satin scrunchies, and silk hair towel, which comes in a bunch of cute colors and prints. I have been truly blown away by every single product I've tried, so I would highly suggest you check them out, especially because right now, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com WCN. That's right. 30% off of anything and everything at mykitsch, spelled M-Y-K-I-T-S-C-H, dot com slash W-C-N. One more time, mykitsch.com forward slash W-C-N for 30% off your entire order. During the years that I was married, so much changed within the larger scope of the FLDS. The prophet had died, and there had been a very contentious takeover by his son, Warren. It had radically shifted the dynamics within the community. He had always been a proponent of the end of the world, but Warren really started to focus on that the end of the world is coming, you have to be righteous, and only the good and the pure will be allowed to live. Through the years that I had been in this relationship, I had gone to Warren and the leadership on multiple occasions, really vulnerably and honestly laying out what was happening. 
in the beginning, I was so innocent that I really didn't understand sex and I didn't understand what marital relations meant. So when it was happening to me and it was happening to me in such a physically brutal way, I believed it was wrong. I did everything I could to communicate that I believed this was wrong and so therefore I needed to be released or divorced from this man. Each and every time I would be sent back with the direct order to give myself mind, body, and soul to my husband. And that the only salvation that I had, the only way to heaven, was I had to be considered a good, faithful, and obedient wife in his eyes. He was my only ticket. I was 18 years old. The rest of the world at this point saw me as an adult, but I had been married for several years and I had experienced all kinds of abuse and multiple miscarriages. I realized that there was no hell that I could even imagine that was worse than what I was in. There came a point that it didn't matter how much delusion I was under. The very last time that I sat in the position of being reprimanded as a member and as a woman under the control of the FLDS leadership, I had Warren Jeffs tell me how horrible of a person I was, that I had committed most horrible sins and that the only salvation I had from that point forward was the ultimate act of blood atonement. What changed everything for me was he turned to the man that I had been married to and he said to him, a job well done. There was something that cracked in me. People talk about seeing red. I saw red and my brain just fritzed out. That little spark that had been inside of me that had been dormant for several years, it rose up with fury. I thought to myself, there is no God that I believe in that could look at this person and say a job well done. What I didn't realize at the time is, is that would be an essential moment in helping me to gain the beginning of perspective that would change everything. That night, I ran away from my community. I remember packing up my belongings. It was a bag of clothes, a couple of boxes of pictures, letters, and sentimental things that I had gathered throughout my life. It was very, very little. I packed them up in the little car that I had access to and drove outside of town along with someone else that was also leaving that same day. I remember looking back at the lights as they're drifting further and further away. There was a sense of intrepidness because I didn't know what I was in for. The way that I had been taught was that the worst thing someone can be is an apostate and that is someone who chose to leave the gospel or the church. That was now me because I was choosing to leave. What I had been told was that they go out into the world and they're raped, beaten, and taken advantage of. And all of these things are told to us without realizing that that's exactly what had been happening. I didn't have the understanding that everything that they were telling me that was going to happen to me if I chose to leave had been happening to me for the last three and a half years. As I'm driving away, I realized it was kind of like jumping into the unknown. You have no idea what's on the other side. I left in fall of 2004. It would take me years to really understand the gravity of that choice. It was as though I was a refugee in that I'm from America and I was born and raised here, but I am not at all from American society. Everything that someone would need to learn on how to function in American society, that's what I would have to learn. I'd have to learn how to dress, how to socialize, how to learn culture, how to get a job, how to get a bank account, all of these things that we take for granted in our day-to-day -day life. I was starting to look at the world around me and decide, okay, what pieces work for me? What pieces am I going to bring into my life? 
I was also coming from a place where I had no education. I didn't go to traditional school. I was only educated inside of the religion until ninth grade because I was married right in the middle of ninth grade. That's been a process of just learning to educate myself on every single level, mix it with internal strength, then choose to learn from every single circumstance. That's all I can do is adapt, learn, and do the best that I can to grow beyond it, even when it is so incredibly difficult. That was really my mission and focus over the next year or two. After I had my son becoming a mother, it really changed even more so because now I needed to figure out how to do it for myself as well as for my son and later my daughter. And there came this point where I had successfully carried a child and it was this really powerful moment to me because I realized that if I was holding this little baby, that meant that something loved me somewhere enough and that maybe all of the things that had been said to me were not completely true. I realized that this fierce protectiveness and this desire to never, ever let anything happen to this child, I wondered if my mother had even had the chance to have that same experience. It led me to realize that what had happened to me was going to happen to my two younger sisters. It was going to happen to them and their children and the next children's children's children. It wasn't going to end unless something changed. That understanding and clarity led me to tell my story to law enforcement and to start the long, arduous, and incredibly difficult journey of investigating my claims, which would ultimately lead to charges being filed against Warren Jeffs, the leader of the FLDS, as well as the man that they had married me to that has led me to where I am today. The realities of the legal side of this never makes it into documentaries. When the charges were first filed against Warren Jeffs, it was a very landmark moment because in the state of Utah, it was very difficult to prosecute people when it had anything to do with religion. Here in America, we have that as one of our central parts, the freedom of religion. The argument was, it's not about religion, this is about abuse. I wasn't married into a polygamous relationship. I was a child that experienced extreme physical, mental, and sexual abuse. So it was about abuse. Even with that, it was such a long process because a lot of people don't realize that most rape or sexual violence cases that are prosecuted, they are not successful. Elisa is right. According to an absolutely gutting 2018 Washington Post article, less than 1% of rapes or attempted rapes end in a felony conviction. Relatedly, only 30% of incidents are even reported, while 5.7% of incidents actually result in any arrest at all. Thank goodness the jury found him guilty. The evidence was very, very clear, but Warren's attorneys they would go on to file appeal after appeal, and it ultimately was brought in front of the Utah Supreme Court. Sadly, in 2010, the Utah Supreme Court overturned Warren Jeffs' conviction on a simple jury instruction. They were very articulate in their opinion that they offered. This was not about the victim, and they even went as far as to offer their condolences for what I had been through as the victim. But they felt that the jury instructions were flawed. The integrity of the law and the integrity of jury instruction was more important than the conviction. And so they handed that back down to be reconvicted. Before I left, Warren had started another compound in El Dorado, Texas. He had claimed this was a Zion. 
down in that compound, he had moved a lot of children and what he considered righteous people. But it was an extreme version of what all the rest of us were experiencing. While he was down there, he had taken several child brides. In 2008, that compound was raided by law enforcement because there was claims of abuse that were happening. That raid led to evidence that was gathered around the crimes that were happening on that compound. Warren Jeffs had married and recorded his sexual abuse of children, a girl as young as 12 years old. In 2010, when Warren's conviction in Utah was overturned, I was faced with the decision. Am I prepared to go through another trial here in Utah? I had been working with Texas in a variety of different ways to help them in their process down there. I knew that they were ready to prosecute Warren in Texas for his crimes there. Myself, as well as the prosecution here in Utah, we made the decision to go ahead and defer any further trial that we would have here in Utah until after Warren was tried in Texas. That was because I knew the evidence that was waiting to be presented in court. Work needed to be done in helping the people that were still entrapped in Warren's clutches, as well as the larger world at hand. And that would come to be what happened. The world got a chance to see who Warren really was and what he was doing. That evidence that was brought into trial, not just in Warren's trial, but as well as the other men who were prosecuted from the Texas compound, was essential in freeing a lot of people who were entrapped in the cult of the FLDS. Warren Jeffs was convicted in Texas for life in prison plus 20 years for sexually assaulting two young girls that he had married. The man who I had been forced to marry, who was my first cousin, he ultimately pled out to sexual misconduct of a minor, such a lower crime than he was originally charged with. And there was a lot of reasons why that happened the way it did. A lot of that was out of my control. He ultimately only served 30 days in jail for that crime. It was really interesting because my experience was in both sides of the legal system. I was heavily involved criminally as well as civilly. I filed lawsuits against the financial arms of the FLDS, the church itself, as well as Warren Jeffs. I filed it against multiple people because when I originally came forward, there wasn't a lot of assurance that we were going to be successful. I saw being able to go after this civilly was another tool in which we could potentially make some change in case we were not successful criminally. I'm often asked, did I feel supported? What was that process like? I can tell you it was an incredibly complex journey. In the very beginning, I was very first coming forward with law enforcement because I was incredibly lucky to connect with a county prosecutor here in Utah who was absolutely excellent at his job. He went above and beyond to gather the right team of people and investigators to very graciously and tenderly walk me through telling my story to law enforcement. So during the beginning, I felt very supported. I had the opportunity to experience it in a way that a lot of people don't get because I had the support of the prosecution team. I had a personal attorney who was incredibly supportive of me. Over time, that would change. As Warren's trial went through the appeals process in the court, I really did watch as the court started to really drop the ball. I was in the legal system as a victim or in the civil side of it for 12 years. It took me 12 years to make the progress that was made. 12 years in the legal system is absolutely mind-blowing. That must have been re-traumatizing in its own right. Absolutely. I think that's something that we just have to be really honest with. 
anytime someone has to testify in court, it is absolutely traumatizing because not only are they telling their story, but there is also a defending team that their whole goal is to diminish the gravity of the crime in any way possible. It's very difficult to be the victim in that place. From my experience, the approach was, how do we attack the victim? I remember having the defending attorney say right to me, the rape didn't happen. And for the better part of several days, we had been laying out evidence of how it had happened. But that was the approach that was taken. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next on What Came Next. That quantum crumble happens before the quantum leap. I had to crumble that way. At the very bottom of it, when I'm at my darkest point and all the pieces of who I am are scattered all over the ground, I had to start from there and pick up one at a time. Another thank you to Kitsch for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com WCN. That's 30% off anything and everything at mykitsch, spelled M-Y-K-I-T-S-C-H, dot com slash W-C-N. One more time, mykitsch.com slash W-C-N for 30% off your order. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.